Hey everybody, you're listening to the Legacy Church Podcast. Legacy Church is a multi-generational church that exists to worship God, become like Jesus, and bring hope to our community. Today, we're sharing a message from our current series. We believe that the Word of God is powerful and has real-life application to our lives today. We hope that this message encourages you. Get connected and learn more about us by visiting our website at lgcy.church. First Thessalonians 4. Yeah, there it is. It says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. This is the word of God. Father God, right now, I thank you that you are here among us, that your Holy Spirit is found wherever your church is, that these brothers and sisters in Christ are gathered together because they are hungry and thirsty to hear from you. They need to hear from you. And so, Lord, I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way, that the word that you have today would be seed planted in good soil, that hearts would be opened, and that people would feel your presence, the hope, the love, the compassion that you bring with you always, that you have said is with us always. And so, Lord, I just pray that over your people right now. And that as this message continues today, that they would feel your presence more and more and that you would speak to each person exactly what it is they need to hear. Thank you, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, I don't know about you guys, but this has been a pretty rough year for me. It started right after Christmas last year when my grandmother found out that she had terminal cancer. Now, I live about a thousand miles away from my hometown, so it had been really easy for me to say it was too far, we're too busy, just hide behind the distance. But as January ticked on and I listened to my mom cry on the phone and read all of her angry and despairing texts, I knew I had to go. I, um, I couldn't take over caring for my grandmother, but my mom needed someone to take care of her while she was slowly becoming a hospice nurse for someone who had been really mean to her most of her life. So first I flew in with my daughter, Mackenzie, probably met her, she's about this high. Um, we flew in so we could say goodbye before things got ugly. We flew out a week later, I turned around, packed my bags, and drove back, um, right the day after my grandmother went to be with Jesus. And the moment I stepped in the door, I knew I had done the right thing by coming back because the atmosphere in there was so heavy that I couldn't breathe. My mom's brother and sister had really, really wanted for their mom to apologize to them for the rough childhood that they had had. And they received no such reconciliation. And so their bitterness and trauma were just on full display. 
And it added tremendous anxiety to my mother's already overflowing plate, and she is extremely drama allergic, so this was not good. And I still couldn't do mom's job, but I could do something. So I stayed for two weeks. I slept in the living room. I did dishes and laundry, cooked meals, ran errands. I listened to my aunt tell stories for hours about everything she picked up. I generally did what my mom had zero capacity for. She navigated the business of death. And I prayed over the kitchen table in the dark for the peace and wholeness of my family. I made the 15-hour drive back to Hamilton on my birthday, exhausted and stressed out. But I was glad I'd done it. I was glad that I went. I had served my mother in her time of need. It was good. And now... I could rest, I could get my feet under me, get started on the new year, and I was really excited. I had so many writing projects that I wanted to do after a year off to establish my home, and I had ideas for teaching and speaking and building the church with my friends. But I want you to notice that that sentence was in the past tense, because as rough as January was, it turned out just to be the beginning. By the end of February, the housing market was in such a state that we were suddenly underwater on our house that God had given us. Our refinancing plan was shot and we were left holding an enormous bill. Also, I underwent, premature, uh, went, underwent testing for what turned out to be a premature heartbeat. So if I talk really fast, it's biological and I can't help it, sorry. In March, I took my husband's grandmother, his Oma, to the ER and waited 12 hours to find out that she basically had no blood left and needed an immediate transfusion. And I sort of became her officially unofficial medical chaperone after that, attending all of her appointments with her and running errands. In the next week, in the middle of a school year, full of really upsetting interactions with Mackenzie's teachers, Lino and I decided that we were gonna homeschool Mackenzie which I never wanted to do, frankly, because I didn't want to spend that much time with my kid every day. <laughs> but God had been pointing it out for a while, so we gave her the choice about when her last day was gonna be, either right after Easter break, or we could wait till the end of May. And I'm sure you can figure out which one she decided. By mid-April, my entire world was upside down. I had grown accustomed to sending my kid to school every day and having six hours in which to accomplish life. I could write, I could grow, I could just be me. And now I had a shadow, somebody fighting me every time I needed to go to the store. All these extra obstacles if I wanted to leave the house and zero quiet unless there was a screen on. It was very much like when she was a baby, which gave me kind of some flashbacks because it was a really hard time in my life. Couldn't write a word, couldn't make any plans, rarely remembered to brush my teeth. And I love my kid, there's no question about that. But suddenly having her glued to me after three years of relative freedom threw me into such a state of heaviness and chaos that I just couldn't, I just couldn't shake it. May was not much better. We'd kind of found a shaky rhythm of days but May is crazy for us. It's Mackenzie's birthday and Lino's birthday and Mother's Day all at the same time. 
And about the middle of the month, we had an incident with our sweet dumb dog, who some of you have met, um, where it became very obvious that we could not keep her. We were just not equipped to deal with a giant, hairy toddler who poops in our yard. And so we rehomed her. Um, my husband and my kid were pretty disappointed, but I was relieved. I did not need that in my life. Oh, right, and this whole time also, we had a housemate since the Christmas, uh, who, by the way, best housemate ever, 10 out of 10, would recommend. Uh, but we had to help her pack up and move the very tiny first week of June. And then we turned around and drove to my mother's for a month. June was quiet, uh, except for my remaining grandmother, whose health is declining, and her house that smells like dog pee and is just full of 20 years of hoarding. And then my brother, who's living with her, has become sort of his, the like default caretaker and is so stressed out that he's having heart problems now. And my mom, who of course doesn't want to see her son struggling, has stepped in and now she is caretaking for a woman who has been her ex-mother-in-law for 35 years. And my dad, his, you know, this is her kid. My dad was, is just so self-absorbed self that he's barely present in her care and didn't even see us unless I initiated contact. We were there for five weeks. Oh yeah, and a family friend of ours died of alcoholism while we were there. June was fine. How you guys doing out there? Are you bored? Are you bored? Are you overwhelmed? You feeling a little stressed out maybe? Getting a little, getting anxious? How do you think I feel? We're only halfway through the year. This is only till June. And every one of these incidents, I could tell you details for hours, but I'm not gonna do that because that's not the point. I'm not telling you all this so you can feel sorry for me. I'm not interested in currying sympathy or pity or even compassion for my situation. Instead, what I'm hoping is that as I'm droning on about my problems, you're starting to think about yours. I'm hoping that you're gonna reflect on your own past year, or two, or 10. I hope you're thinking about your own sorrows and fears, the battles that you've been waging privately, the burdens you're carrying behind your brave face. Okay, we're gonna dive back in here because it didn't stop. Three days after getting back from the States in July, we finally got to meet with a pediatrician for a behavioral assessment. Turns out Mackenzie has ADHD. And however you might feel about that, I was relieved because we finally had a framework in which we could help our spicy little girl navigate the world and deal with her brain wiring, this unique personality that God gave her. And the day after that, this still blows my mind. I haven't fully dealt with this yet. The day after that, we found out that Lino had been diagnosed as a child, and he was never told. He's 41. So he's wrestling with that now as well. And while this explained a lot about what was going on in our house, it 
didn't really prepare us. We weren't sure how to move forward in a healthy way as a family. August, there was another drive to my mom's. So for those keeping track, this is four. I used to see my mom one week a year, four drives. This time, I went to support her during her own spinal surgery to remove some like buildup that was making her arms and legs go numb. And I stayed a week, I navigated the hospitals, the nurses, the med schedules, and explained to my mother that a savory smoothie is just cold soup, stop it. So gross. And an hour after I got back in town, Lino turns to me and tells me that his Oma fell and broke her hip and was in the hospital, and the whole family was in an uproar. And then he left. He had to go for the long ruck, his uh, annual event that he does to raise money for homeless veterans, which, by the way, this year was the 10th year, and they hit the million-dollar mark. So I'm extremely proud of him and the work that they do. Million dollars for homeless vets. September school started, which for us meant that we needed to set up our co-op. So we are coordinating schedules, figuring out how to teach four grades to six kids, and trying not to fall into the same traps of traditional school that we just got out of. While navigating all that, I was taking on more and more of Oma's care post-surgery, taking her to two appointments a week, um, usually a third day for errands, working through her meds, and I was also spending a lot of time with my mother-in-law, who she lived with, listening to her agonize over her complex relationship with her mother and feeling unable to help because she was already still grieving the sudden loss of her husband from last year. It was a lot. At the beginning of October, almost there, I learned that my own worsening bouts of gastrointestinal distress and exhaustion were more than just coincidence. Uh, my endometriosis, just look it up, had tripled, and I've been scheduled for surgery. That same week, Oma took a sharp decline, had another fall, hospitalized the day after Thanksgiving, and she was dead a week later. She left behind no will, no arrangements, no wishes. Nothing except a cluttered room and a lifetime of trauma deposited in her children and grandchildren. And in the background of all this, the war in Israel exploded, causing rifts in my husband's family as sides were taken in the middle of their own crisis at home. So I'm gonna stop here. Other things have happened, but I'm gonna stop here because this is where God stopped me. Everything I've told you, this list of grievances, is just the surface. Left out all the background stuff, the housekeeping and errands, the gym, friendships, my marriage, having to step back from stuff that I love, friends moving away, talk of us moving, and depression, disassociation, anxiety that got so bad I have had to call about medication. One day, I couldn't read. I was so stressed out. I was reading material I was super familiar with, and I couldn't read it. It, it was like it was written in another language, which for a writer is extremely stressful. 
I've laid all this out this way on purpose. I want you to feel the drone of the words, the passage of time, the growing burden of trouble as it bears down on you day after day, month after month, with no sign of stopping. The physical heaviness of carrying hardship, even if it isn't yours. Because that's what we do. We take on other people's hardship as if it were our own. I want you to feel what it's like to lose track of the details, even as they're pulling you under. It's the tedium and the trauma at the same time. Because this, my friends, is grief. It's not just brushes with death. It's the repeated pummeling of disappointment, disruption, and despair that erodes our defenses until we can't remember what it feels like to live any other way. It's being grieved, being so battered and weighed down in your soul by nonstop tides of mundane, everyday trouble to the point that it feels like it's you that died. But I, I didn't know that. I didn't understand the difference or what was happening to me until I sat in that pew in mid-October, the first day that we opened for pre-service prayer, 9.30, get there, it will change your life. I didn't even know what to pray. I was so shattered. I just knew that I needed to hear from God. And he is so good to speak when we cry out. The moment I sat down, I heard, do not grieve as those who have no hope. It was the same phrase that I would think as I'd pull away from my mother-in-law's house in the declining weeks of Oma's life. Every time I left, my heart ached. Not because I was sad about Oma's impending death. She was 89 and in incredible pain. It was because her family was in such agony over the trauma that she had planted in their lives. It clung to every surface of the house. It was in every conversation, every look. I'd get in my car after calmly, gently holding space for everyone's anger and grief and pain. And I would get in my car and literally scream my prayers, begging Jesus to do something, anything, to heal this family of this generations of hurt, abuse, and unforgiveness, even though they don't know him and don't want to. Just please, Jesus, do something. And the Holy Spirit would whisper to me once I stopped shouting, you do not grieve as those who have no hope. Hearing it again in the pew, I knew it was a word from God, something he'd been trying to tell me for weeks, but I hadn't been able to hear my own thoughts, much less the voice of Jesus. So this brings us back to where we started. I'll read you the full scripture again. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. This is a powerful verse. But if I'm honest, it didn't comfort me the way I wanted it to. 
Here, Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica to remind them of Jesus' promise of eternal life after death. And while death has definitely been my shadow this year, truthfully, it's all the rest of it that was choking the life out of me. The daily chaos that refused order, that had become so loud and persistent. But because God knows me, he nudged me to my beloved interlinear Bible to see the original Greek. And that's where I saw what he really wanted to say. And not, not just to me, I'm up here today because I really believe that this word is for each of you, individually, and for us corporately as a church. The Greek word here is lupeo, means grief, carries the expected meaning of deep hurt and sadness, as in mourning. But it goes so much further than that. Lupeo is to grieve, to vex, to offend. It's to make sorry, to make uneasy, distress, affliction, heaviness, regret, anguish. It's very intense emotional pain to the point of being used to describe the pain of childbirth. In Mark 10, the rich young man is Lupeo. He's grieved, devastated to his soul when Jesus tells him that he has to sell everything and follow him because he's got so much wealth. And so he misses out on eternal life in the kingdom of God. At the Last Supper, the disciples are Lupeo, exceedingly sorrowful and anxious when Jesus reveals that one of them, his best friends for three years, will betray him into death. Peter is Lupeo when Jesus questions him during their reconciliation at the beach, his shame heavy in his heart, even as Jesus is forgiving and recommissioning him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul frets over visiting the church because of how badly he roasted them in his first letter. He's worried his arrival will hurt them and himself. If he's lupeoing them with his presence, he cannot comfort them. And who will comfort him in his trials if they are lupeoed by him themselves? In his first letter, Peter urges believers to submit to cruel masters saying that being obedient and respectful while enduring lupeo daily is only possible through Jesus because he knows what it's like to suffer pain, wrong, and shame that isn't your fault. I could go on. There's a lot of these. What I'm trying to show you with these examples, though, is that our modern understanding of grief is too limited. We become familiar with the word in the context of mourning, but we've forgotten that it has other meanings and expressions. We're grieved in times of death and loss, that's true. But this fallen world offers so many other ways for us to bend and break. You lose your job. You're underwater on your house. Your parents start to show their age. Siblings stop speaking to one another child receives a lifelong diagnosis. Your mentor turns out to be a villain. A safe space suddenly is not. 
that little pain that you've been ignoring is not so little. Friends, move away. Leave the church. Get cancer. This spouse who vowed to be there forever suddenly is not. Taylor Swift tickets are $10,000. These things have nothing to do with death. This is being grieved, hit in our deepest, most vulnerable places over and over until it feels like all we're made of is sorrow, bitterness, fear, and offense. And we can sustain this grief like a wound, like a series of wounds. We collect it up, gather misery and stress, doubt and wrongs, and we tuck them into the little cuts in our heart until they're a museum of pain that we carry around with us, until their combined gravity creates such a despondent atmosphere Others around us start getting pulled in by it, too. And if this goes on long enough, a week, month, season, just pulling a number out of the air, one year, seven months, six days, this consistent grieving of your spirit wears down your soul. It dries out your bones until there's nothing left of you except a brittle skeleton mobilized by electricity, salt, and a need to pay your bills. You become a flat, pale husk of a human, the outline of a man, the suggestion of a woman, rather than the vibrant, substantial, living image of God you were created to be. Remember when Ezekiel spoke to the dry bones in the valley? They were made flesh and had life breathed into them, but we aren't told what happened to them afterwards. Where did those guys go? What did they do? What were their lives like? I very much want to know. But we're left to imagine it, right? To make it up for ourselves. And this is terrifying, actually. Because if scripture does speak to our situation today, this story tells us no hints. It says that God will revive and restore us after a dry bone season, but not what it will be like after. And we don't want to guess. We want to know. Because here in our pain, in our grieved spirits, there's already so much we don't know. There's so much out of our control, so much we're already grappling with that the idea of more unknowns, more hard situations, more input on the other side of God's intervention is too much to bear. And so we stay nestled up in our grief, where it's at least a familiar kind of uncomfortable, something we can handle. We can't see beyond our circumstances to what happens once God revives us and gives us new life. We choose grief, then. We move from sustaining it to entertaining it. We fold it into our crushed spirit as if it belongs there. In our own wisdom, in our hurt and fear, we choose the pain of staying the same over the pain of change, labeling it the lust of two evils. And in the process, by default, we label God as evil. 
yeah, I feel bad. I felt it when I wrote it too, but I'm not taking it back because that's what we do. Let's face it, when you are suffering, when your soul feels like it's held together with duct tape and spit, you're wondering if God actually is good, if he actually loves you anymore, or if he ever did. Maybe there's some trespass you've committed and you try to recall all your sins so maybe you can make it better. It's hard to see the light when your eyes are swollen shut, when you're punch drunk and spitting out teeth. A grieved spirit makes it hard to remember the truth. And the truth is that if God is in control of all that was and all that is and all that is to come, he's not ignorant of our circumstances. He isn't selectively blind to our broken hearts all the shortfalls and nasty surprises when we're suffering day after day, month after month, year after year, and yet he allows it for our good and his glory. But we're only human after all. We can only take so much before we start to shake and shatter. Grief is more than mourning. It's a heart condition. It's a state of being. One that if left unchecked, swallows up our soul, crushes our spirit. And once that happens, once your spirit man is out for the count, there's nothing that you can do in your own strength to resuscitate him. If you've been in this place that I'm talking about, you know exactly what I mean. There is no amount of self-care or gossip or video games or sex or sugar or other addictive substances that is going to give you more than temporary relief. There's no move, no retreat, no change of scenery that will heal your wounds. None. But after all this, after all these sad stories and all this heavy talk, I've brought you all this way to the bottom of the pit to give you good news. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. This verse is about so much more than mourning. If there is hope for those grieving the deaths of their friends and family in Thessalonica, then surely there is hope for today for those whose spirits are crushed and whose bones are dry. Hope for those whose spirits are grieved by the daily business of living. Hope for you and me. And at the risk of sounding cliche, that hope is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who lived and died and rose from the dead to secure our salvation, to save us from ourselves and the evil of the enemy, to wash us clean from not just sin itself, but its effects, from the separation from God, both in eternity and here on the earth now. When we confront death, we as believers have the comfort of knowing that it isn't the end, that it is in fact a merciful release. Our salvation through Jesus secures our place in heaven, gives us hope for the future, a reason to look at our present trouble and remember it's only temporary because one day we'll return to our Father's glorious house where there are no more tears and no more pain. But 
God's mercy and grace for our grieved spirits extends beyond death, beyond the death of bodies to our ordinary, everyday, walking around life, with all its living deaths of failure and regret, guilt, worry, loss. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He's described as the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. His compassion for our suffering is as limitless as his love. And this means that we don't suffer the assault of life without hope. There's a promise that our trials and tribulations will have a remedy and reward, not just in the hereafter, but now. And I know that this sounds like I'm fabricating nice feelings out of nothing or that I'm preaching prosperity gospel, but I swear that's not the case. It's right here in scripture. In Isaiah 61.7, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. Psalm 142, three through five. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Psalm 27, 10 through 13. Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. Yet I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. These are just three passages in which God makes clear promises for our current existence, not just the one to come. And God is not a man that he should lie. His word secures our hope, anchors our soul in the deepest, most violent waters with the assurance that he not only sees and knows our affliction, but has good plans to deliver honor and glory from it. Sitting in that pew with this fresh understanding of my own grieved spirit, tears running down my face, I waited to feel the relief that I knew I should have felt. When you get a powerful revelation like that, it's supposed to set you free. The world clicks into place as the burden lifts and the Holy Spirit rushes in to comfort you. And color comes back into the world as God's goodness draws you to him. But it didn't happen, not right away. Instead, the Holy Spirit asked me a question. He said, what will you choose? And I realized in that moment that my freedom was up to me. I had a choice. Do I really believe it? Do I believe everything I just said? Do I believe that Jesus is the Lord of life, the Prince of peace, the light of the world, the hope of man? Because he either is or he isn't. There's no in between, right? And if he is, if I can trust Jesus for my eternal salvation, 
to not have to grieve death, then how can I not trust him for the hope of his salvation in every other area in which I am grieved now? Will I grieve as one without hope? There was only one answer, for me, anyway. Um, the litany of BS didn't stop after that realization, by the way. Since I started working on writing all this down, my mother-in-law was hospitalized. She's fine. I found out another friend has cancer. Our house got flagged as part of the LRT expansion. <laughs> and my social security number may have been stolen. <laughs> That's in the last, what, what is that, three weeks? Yeah. But it hits different now. Still hurts, still sucks. It still makes me feel like this is the tribulation and come on Jesus, what are you waiting for? But rather than the pain of death, it's the pain of God putting flesh and life back onto dry bones. It's the pain of birth as God remakes me in Jesus's image, holding my sweaty hand as we both eagerly look forward to the blessing that's ahead. And so now I'm going to ask you, what about you? Remember, James said when, not if, you have trouble. It's going to happen. But you have a choice how to respond. Even if God doesn't remove the thorns from your flesh, will you still believe he's good? Even if your situation doesn't change, even if the loved one dies, or the spouse doesn't repent, or the memories don't fade. Will you trust that his word is true? When your soul is sick, and your bones are dried up, and your spirit is weary to the point of death, what will you choose? Will you continue to allow the enemy a foothold, reasonable though it might seem to be grieved by circumstances, emotions, and thoughts that just won't stop? Or will you cling to Jesus, who is your hope, to the God who promises to show you his goodness in the land of the living? It's time. Choose hope. Choose Jesus. Don't live a life of grief as one who has no hope, not for death, not for the pain of living for the gospel, not for the burden of your suffering in a fallen world. Because there's hope that never leaves or forsakes you, that sees you through every moment and promises that your labor is not in vain. And that hope has a name. Father God, right now, I just pray for your people. Thank you for your hope that we don't have to wait. That every wound that we sustain in this life is covered by the blood of Jesus, is understood by Jesus and comforted by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you see it all, you hold it all. And no matter how disappointed we may feel, how disappointed we may be, you love us. You love us enough to set us up on our feet and say, keep going. 
forget the former things. I'm doing something new. There is hope. There is light. There is life. Speak dry bones that come to life, that flesh and breath would come back into your people today. It's time. Holy Spirit, it's time. The time for grief is over. It's time to celebrate the birth. God, help us to point our eyes at the horizon where you're looking to keep our ears and hearts tuned to your frequency above all others. And remember that you are in it with us. You don't go on without us. If we need to sit down and rest for a minute, you rest with us. When we're ready to plow ahead, you go. You don't leave us behind. There is power in the name of Jesus. So if you don't know what to pray, just say his name when he comes running. That is the hope that you have right now when all else seems dark and you can't feel it. Thank you, God, that you are the hope. Thank you, God, for Jesus who knows our sorrows, who shed his blood to heal them, and for your Holy Spirit who reminds us and comforts us every step of the way. We can't wait to see what's on the other side, even as we walk through it with you now. Thank you for your hope, Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on our website at lgcy.church.